Hi, I'm Malcolm Maiden and welcome to the Yarra Exchange, a podcast covering what's happening in the markets and the world of business generally, brought to you by independent Australian fund manager, Yarra Capital Management. Today, I'm sitting down with Roy Keenan, Yarra's head of Australian fixed income. I'm reliably informed Roy is the firm's longest serving employee. Having joined Yarra way back in the early 1990s, well before the Goldman Sachs days. He's got roughly 35 years industry experience, so you might say he's been around the block more than a few times. I'm sure it's going to be an interesting discussion. At Yarra, Roy leads the firm's fixed income business, which invests across the full spectrum of debt securities. He's been running the firm's flagship fixed income strategy, the Yarra Enhanced Income Fund, since 2002, and has delivered some pretty good outperformance over that period. Over the past five years, that fund has delivered an annualised return of 5.65%, including franking, and that's net of fees. It's outperforming the benchmark, the RBA cash rate, by just under 4.5% over that period. Importantly, the fund has a track record of delivering high, stable income to its investors, with franked distributions averaging just under 4.3% per year over that five-year period. That's a fair bit better than your average term deposit right now. We're catching up today at an appropriate social distance at opposite ends of a long boardroom table in Melbourne. Fortunately, as the state's coronavirus restrictions continue to ease. Roy, thanks for joining me. It's fantastic to have you here. Thanks, Mel. I really appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, so as I mentioned, you've been around for a while. You've been in with pretty much the same team for a long time, but with a different shingle on the front door. Just tell us a little bit about how you got here and also how you got into fixed interest. Yeah, I think when I look back, sometimes it's about learned behaviours and I started very young as a hard worker, paper boy, probably uh, started to accumulate a little bit of money and I think back to those days in primary school and I think anyone a bit older generation used to bank with your school. Uh, They'd come and collect your, your bank account and I think I was attracted to accumulating interest and someone paying me for not working. So I think, you know, I look back and that's probably where it started. But uh, as the pool of money I started to actually accumulate, I actually wanted to make it work harder. And my grandfather introduced me to debentures, which was quite interesting because it was a lot better than the interest rate uh, available in a bank account. So probably not too dissimilar to what life's like today. Moving, you know, when I started to think about my career and where I wanted to go to, It shows you how times have changed, but I door knocked Collins Street uh, for financial institutions, dropped my CV off, and I think I got offered two jobs, MLC and State Insurance Office. Just shows you how much times have changed. Didn't even have an interview. And um, when I look back, I was lucky enough to start in finance at State Insurance Office in 1984, and then I moved into settlements back office. Uh, So that got me that introduction to how markets work, uh, how they settle, And then as time got on, I actually um, went for an opportunity at Treasury Corporation Victoria, back then was known as VicFin. That was when? That was in 1988. So just before the exciting times of uh, Victoria's double downgrade and and where we are today, it's quite interesting. Victoria's just been downgraded twice by S&P yesterday. So uh, some 30 years later, we've got the same sort of scenarios playing out. Although uh, back then you might say it was our fault. This time we can say external circumstances? or Yes, correct. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But ultimately, the ability to get back from where we are today at AA back to AAA is totally different. And then my life moved into, you know, I got an opportunity to join JB Weir in 1992. 
uh, as a price maker, a trader, you know, which was quite, you know, you know, I was able to expand on the things I'd learned you know, and my job working for the Victorian government. And then uh, as time has progressed, uh, JB Weir became Goldman Sachs JB Weir. Uh, I sort of moved into credit, more credit. And in 1990, uh, sorry, 2002, we launched the Enhanced Income Fund, which I still manage today, 18 years later. Uh, obviously, through that journey, Goldman Sachs JB Weir became Goldman Sachs. And four years ago, we started uh, Yarra Capital Management, uh, which has been an exciting development in my career. Just before we move on to what you're managing here, was your grandfather a financial specialist? Did you grow up in a financial family? What, what was it about his advice that made you say, geez, this bloke knows what he's talking about? I'd... I was actually the first person in my family to go to university, so far from it, he was not in financial. He was actually a painter. He used to paint the uh, bridges across Yarra, uh, the Yarra River. So it's quite ironic today that I work for Yarra Capital Management, overlooking the Yarra, and my grandfather used to paint the bridges that I look at today. But he knew about compound interest and what it does. Yeah, no doubt. Or making your money work harder. All right. So uh, you've said a little bit about what you're running and managing here, but just tell us more about that, uh, how much you're managing, where you've got it sitting, what, what sort of currencies it's in and so on. Yeah, so today uh, we manage around $1.5 billion in primarily fixed income, which is biased towards credit. We also manage multi-asset funds, which invest you know, across various sectors, asset classes, from fixed income, which is government bonds, semi-governments, to hybrids, into what we call even real assets. Uh, so buying infrastructure and utility companies uh, and also REITs. So fixed income covers uh, not just you know, your fixed income products, but also some equity products that give you that sort of defensive yield characteristics. Now, Roy, you've explained that you're managing various asset classes, but as I understand it, Yara's big game, its big position is in corporate debt. That's debt that companies take on and that you buy. Is that right? And can you tell us more about that, if so? Yeah, that's correct. You know, at Yara, if I think about our research capabilities, our strength is getting to know Australian corporates. And if we think about, you know, how we go about looking at an Australian corporate, they may be an issuer of uh, senior debt, uh, which is, you know, one of the highest rankings within a, in a company, subordinated debt, which ranks behind a senior rating. But, but still ahead of equity and a lot, still of, ahead and of, a lot of other debt yeah, classes. Yeah, yeah. Equity is obviously our first loss piece in, in any, any structure. Yeah. So that's our sort of protection from a fixed income perspective. But then we will even look at in financials like banks and insurance companies where uh, we'll look at tier one and tier two securities. And what I mean by that is they rank once again behind senior uh, securities of the bank and uh, essentially with some hybrids today, we have conf potential conversion into equity, which adds more complications uh, to the analysis that we do. So hybrid debt is debt that's got the characteristics of uh, in part of debt, but also in part of equity. Yeah, so they behave like fixed income and through the life of the security, they will most likely be, you know, trade like fixed income. The only time they will start to look, you know, and trade more like equity is where there is potential for that, you know, those events to convert you to equity uh, to be triggered. So you're focusing primarily on Australian companies. Does that mean uh, that the portfolio overall, and in particular this corporate debt portfolio, is mainly Australian dollar based? Yeah. So, you know, our, our fundamental research here that we work very closely with the equities team when a company comes in to see us, we'll uh, share the meetings you know, with the equities team and we'll tend as a fixed income team with that into that meeting. Uh, but we also share research. We share ideas. We look at you know, what's driving a company. 
Uh, and that gives us that ability to fully understand Australian corporate. So that corporate may be an issue in Australian dollars. It may be issuing into international markets in euros, US dollars. Uh, and we have funds which have the capability to follow that Australian company offshore. Uh, we will naturally hedge foreign exchange risk because our job is to actually try to get a fixed income return, not to gain exposure to uh, an underlying currency. We've recently seen the Australian dollar looking quite strong. So uh, holding not just Australian company debt, but also primarily, I think you're saying, uh, Australian dollar company debt as well. What does that mean for you if this continues? We're seeing stories now saying Australia's recovery might actually be spoiled to an extent if the Aussie dollar keeps on rising because the Aussie dollar is bad for our competitiveness if it goes up. Is it good or bad or neutral if it continues to go up for you and this portfolio? So from a fixed income perspective, because we have no exposure, uh, it really makes no difference, apart from the, sort of the supply and demand side of it. And what we generally find, if you know, investors typically believe Aussie, the Aussie dollar is about to rise, we tend to see foreign investors starting to come into the country and buying Aussie assets. And that's no different from property to government bonds to, to credit. So what we generally will see is uh, a lot more demand come in, which potentially will mean a bit more outperformance in, in investing in the fixed income. Uh, you've got some semi-governments, I assume, as well. Just quickly, we've just seen uh, uh, the ratings agency, Standard & Poor's, downgrade uh, Victorian debt by a couple of notches, I think it was, and New South Wales government debt by one notch. Uh, they both lost their AAA as a result of this. What does that mean for people that are holding semi-government debt in this country and what does it mean for people who are going to be buying it later? It's really something that's really close to my heart because obviously working for the Victorian yeah. government back in 1989 when Victoria was double downgraded back then, and it really does show you how much the markets have changed because back then it was an unbelievable learning experience for me because... You know, the volatility, the, you know, the Victorian government debt experience back then was astronomical, mm. whereas the double downgrade was expected by markets so much that the actual impact was a matter of probably five to ten basis points. So very minimal impact from uh, the state's borrowing costs perspective. I think the one thing is probably because you said earlier is external. And if you think about today where government finances are, and in some ways, we predicted this in our portfolios. We didn't own New South Wales and Victorian government debt. Uh, and part of that reason is you think about their revenue, it's all turnover-based, uh, whether it be stamp duty, game, you know, receipts from gaming. Um, so that's very activity-based. Activity-based. Activity yeah. So you have a pandemic and a shutdown like we've experienced in Victoria and a government that's prepared to spend to support the economy here, it was always a string that was being pulled from both ends that was about to break. And I think the rating agencies had no choice but to actually downgrade. So the classic response, I think, in the markets is, well, it's not in the markets, but the classic effect on uh, a debt downgrade is it costs you more to borrow. So does the small response in the markets mean that it, that was already priced in? The markets had already worked out that Victoria and New South Wales were going to have to pay more when they raise money to keep the thing turning over in the future? Yeah, the, no doubt. But still 10 basis points doesn't sound a lot, but if you're talking about a, you know, a Treasury Corporation of Victoria, a 10-year bond at probably 1.5%, 10 basis points on 1.5% is a big percentage. So it is a large move. 
it's not just the cut to double A um, that's important. It's the actual recovery to triple A. And if we revert back to you know what happened in 1989, S&P downgraded Victoria to double A, and it took nearly 14 years to 2003 before we installed that triple A rating. If you look at today's scenario, it's not hard to envisage that that will be will take a little bit longer to achieve. Even longer than it did the first time. In my view, yes. Because they sold stuff last time, didn't they? And you can't sell it twice. No. And, you know, Jeff Kennett sold the poles, uh, the electricity poles out there, and there's none left to sell. So, um, And he got yeah. a huge price, 40 billion bucks from the state privatisation, basically, of the power. And that's what system. repaired the balance sheet back then. So we don't sort of have that scenario. So it'll be, you know, either explore the expansion of the revenue base or via taxation, or you actually cut costs. Or uh, you stay uh, without, without a triple A and pay the price in the coupon you issue at. Yep, that's correct. Roy, I've got to say, I understand the share market better than I understand the debt market. I, I actually think that that's a pretty common position for people to be in. They understand shares and how they work, the dividends they pay, the capital gains you can post if a share price goes up. Uh, but when you talk about debt, it's less obvious to them what it is they should be investing in. It's less obvious to them how the returns they are getting are flowing and less obvious to them about how capital gains happens. It depends a lot on the kind of debt that you own, doesn't it? Yeah, that's correct. Um, Look, I think the one thing, I've probably learnt this in the pandemic a little bit, um, having worked from home and seeing a lot more of my wife over the last nine months, but um, I got to work with my son you know, whilst we were uh, working a bit more closely. He works in the mortgage industry and he turned to me uh, probably a couple of months ago now and said, why didn't we learn this in school? And uh, I think he's so correct, is that people don't realise how much interest rates impact their life every day. And I think that when I look at equities and, and um, fixed income, my team have a pretty much a, you know, a motto. Uh, we say we leave the blue sky to the equities guys and in fixed income, all we care about is getting paid our interests and getting our money back at the, end of the, at the end of the term of the loan. And that's what we're doing. We're lending. So we're looking for our money, our obligations to be honoured. Whereas in equities, you know, if you buy an equity and you're a shareholder, then you're buying into the profits of that business and dividends aren't guaranteed, whereas in fixed income, they're contractual. They have to be honoured. Otherwise, yes. you have certain stances. So, you know, in the way we look at the companies and we assess things, they are very, very similar, but ultimately the risk that you're taking is fundamentally different. When you go to uh, company briefings to talk about companies, about uh, what they're doing or results that they've posted, the debt people and uh, the equity people, the analysts from both sides go at the same time, I think, don't they? Yeah, that's correct. Um, and it's quite unique. Uh, it's the first, you know, I know Dion, Katie and I, when we set up Yarrow, it was one of the things we wanted is bring the two teams together. We think we get more out of each other by working together. And going to those meetings, it's quite ironic because fixed income investors, you tend, generally only get to see the treasurer or the CFO if you're lucky. You know, by attending meetings with our equity team, we get to see chairmen's CEOs. And what you generally find what happens is at those meetings, you're hearing more about the growth stories. And why is that important for fixed income? Because if they're, you know, if a company's looking to growth, it's about how they're going to finance that growth. Yes. You know, are they going to borrow debt? Are they going to put more equity in? 
So what's the trend for that company? So, so for us, that's very, very important. And understanding equity is also very important for us because that is the first loss piece. You know, equity, you know, if something goes wrong with a company, the equity holders are the ones that share the first loss before they start to move into, a, you know, your fixed income positioning. Now, you said that uh, uh, what you say is uh, we want the interest rate on the way through until it matures and then we want our money back when it does mature. But there is a massive market in trading debt out there. The international bond market is essentially a trading arena, isn't it? So are you saying that basically you don't do that? You are not debt traders here? No, far from it. Our view is to, you know, our motto is to get paid for risk, first of all, in what we're investing in. But the moment we're not getting paid for the risk we're taking, we're looking to exit a credit or trying to find something that will replace it with a better you know, risk-adjusted return in our view. So as you say, the one mystery about fixed income is you can't see it. It's an mm. over-the-counter market. It's about building relationships, getting to know who the players are in a particular marketplace because it could be different for a government bond and corporate debt. It can be different for hybrids. Uh, they're all different counterparties out there that have different strengths. So in the, it's, a, it's a much more nuanced market. But, you know, if you think about uh, equity, the only way you can get out of equity is to sell it. Uh, in fixed income, uh, you're right, you can either sell it in that market if you no longer you know, want to have that risk or you can hold to maturity and uh, you'll get your money back. Well, you could also sell it and take a capital gain depending on what's happened to the interest rate environment between when you bought and... Yeah, when well, that's you, when you actually, take the decision. it's funny you mentioned that because that's one of the things that's actually quite, you know, from a taxation perspective, capital gains are on shares, on fixed income because it's debt. We actually don't have capital gains. It's called income gains, which, you know, from a perspective, an investor's point of view, gains are either taxed at your top marginal tax rate or, you know, if you have losses or you have wages, it can be offset against your wages. They can be deployed in your income tax income, return. Correct. That's Absolutely. interesting. It's always been like that? Always, yeah, because if fixed income is what they call traditional securities from a, a taxation purposes, so they're not part of the CGT legislation. What's the same uh, when you look at shares and fixed interest and what's different? And there's one, one difference I'd like to talk about and that's that the central banks are really big vectors, to use a coronavirus word. Uh, they're big forces in fixed interest. And while they are big forces in equity, it's kind of less direct, I think. Oh, look, I think the one key thing about, you know, and we're talking about interest rates here, is that you value a company you, and, and you're looking at from an equity viewpoint, you're actually looking at forward cash flows. No different than what we're doing from a credit perspective. The one difference from an equity viewpoint is you're actually trying to come up with a valuation for that company. Where do you value that company? And one of the things that drives or discounts those future cash flow expectations back is interest rates. So, you know, that's why I mentioned earlier, interest rates play an important part in everything you do. Mm. Uh, definitely from an equity point of view, if interest rates are, are, are falling, then it's positive from an equity valuation viewpoint. If they're rising, then it's going to be a barrier for equity valuations. So from our perspective, you know, from equities, it's a very important perspective, but from, you know, a fixed income perspective, you know, the introduction of the central banks and what they've been doing in marketplaces is really important for our positioning. You know, not just that, you know, are interest rates going higher or lower, but also where, what sectors we, we will potentially look at where we think the better risk-adjusted returns are. Let's talk a little bit about what's happened this year. Obviously, an extraordinary year in so many ways, but for the markets too. 
And when you think back to uh, the global financial crisis, which kicked off in 2007 and then really exploded in 2008, the first half of 2009, in the second half of 2007, after a scare, share prices surged back up to a record as we came into Christmas that year. The debt markets were falling apart at the same time. They were signalling very clearly that there was a huge structural problem and that there was no avoiding it and there was going to be a reckoning. The debt markets were right. And there's some divergence again this year, isn't it? I mean, the debt markets are less positive if you look at the way they're behaving than the share market is. Yeah, if you look at obviously outright interest rates, you know, they're historical lows. Never, you know, in my career, which has been a long career, never seen them as low as, you know, the low point 70 basis points in October. Look, I think the one thing it's a little bit different this time than probably back in the GFC, uh, although there is similarities, is that the level of, you know, potentially credit spreads in Australia uh, and globally are well, well and truly still above average. Above? Above average, yeah. So whereas, you know, if you think about where we were at that point in time, back in 2006, 7, 8, leading up to that, credit spreads were out there all-time lows. So the compensation for the risk back then was just so tight that, you know, the market couldn't cope with it. Whereas today, that compensation, um, and to give you an example, the enhanced income fund today's got a running yield or a yield to maturity of around 3.5%, you know, some 340 basis points above cash, which is still well and truly above the long-term averages that, you know, I've been running that fund since 2002. The long-term average would be more like what? Around the 280 to 300 basis points. I think one of the reasons that the bond market and other debt markets were getting increasingly nervous in the run-up to the beginning of 2008 was that they figured, correctly as it turned out, that uh, the December 31 balance date for the big American banks would reveal the extent of the losses that they had in high-yielding debt and in derivative debt. Is there any balance date event coming that might expose a similar kind of problem in this coronavirus market? I think it's probably a change from a banking environment. Balance sheets are pretty pristine from what we can see. You know, in, in actual fact, the amount of capital banks have today is, you know, astronomical in comparison to, you know, probably 30% to 40% higher the amount of bank capital that's held today under the Basel III regime and we Basel IV going in. So that's the difference, right? So they're, they're not as leveraged as what they were back into that crisis. You know, but there's no doubt I've learned a lot in 2020. You know, the pandemic, um, you know, in Australia, we've obviously got cash rates of 10 basis points now, but... The introduction of QE in Australia is a massive change to the way you, you view the market today and going forward, but it's provided opportunities for us to invest into some sectors that we probably would never have invested in or we haven't invested in the past. And you know, by that I mean you know, sectors like infrastructure, REITs, uh, where you know, probably we, weren't, we felt we weren't getting paid for the, the risks prior to the pandemic. But as we know, just similar to the equity markets, any of those assets, REITs, infrastructure that have historically been defensive in nature proved not to be defensive in a pandemic. And the equity proved uh, that REITs, way. REITs, real, real, real estate investment trusts we're talking about then. Yeah, exactly. Uh, utilities as well listed on the exchange. So the debt of, their, of those companies performed very, very similar to the equity. And that's what happens when activity stops, right? 
So, you know, from our perspective, that was an opportunity and, you know, we started to look at that, you know, as a potential investment in the middle of 2020 and it's proven to be one of our better stories for the year. I want to have a look at a couple of the individual moves that you made, but before we do that, just quickly, what has happened in the corporate area where you guys are so strong in terms of bad and doubtfuls or not accruals or yeah, look, whatever? I think the one thing moving into this pandemic, Australian balance sheets were in great shape. So we look at probably 70 of the top 100 companies, uh, even though we may not even be invested into those companies, uh, and then obviously a lot of unlisted companies as well. So our perspective is that when we look at pre- and post-pandemic, um, the industries that obviously have been impacted the most, most where we see gearing and interest coverage for, you know, interest uh, gearing, gearing rising interest and interest coverage falling have been REITs, infrastructure, uh, industrials. So, but in some ways, even though we, we actually saw that increase coming, the actual amount of headroom above covenants is still significant. Um, and what I mean by the covenants is they, these companies who borrow into the, in the corporate debt market have generally pretty strict levels because they are investment grade on average companies. They have pretty strict levels how much gearing they can attach uh, to their balance sheet and how much debt they can carry. So for us, you know, as I mentioned earlier, is that even though we've seen deterioration in these companies' balance sheets, we feel the main story is an equity story and that the equity is probably the one that uh, has been wearing the more, you know, more the pain. Mm. And for us, it was a great entry point. To give you an example, Brisbane Airports, which is a key infrastructure asset. Australia is quite unique. We don't have train networks between capital cities. When we did our analysis on, on uh, Brisbane Airport, it was obviously under stress because of no activity happening through the airport. But once again, we felt it had really strong equity uh, support from large superannuation companies. And really on our testing, wasn't really going to breach any of its gearing, but also its credit rating was never going to be downgraded. So uh, I remember at the peak of the, you know, when they came to the marketplace, we bought that bond at around 4.5%. Why was its credit rating never going to be downgraded? I mean, I can think of a scenario where the plans don't get up into the air in big numbers for two years. So why do you feel safe? How can you feel safe uh, buying debt in Brisbane Airport? Yeah, so when we looked at modelling of the Brisbane Airport credit, we actually factored a pretty, you know, dire scenario in. Um, You know, we look at 2021 as in comparison to traffic numbers in 2019 we actually modelled for domestic travel to be down 60%, international down 90%. So it gave us a lot of confidence that we were putting a pretty dire scenario in there. But on top of that, um, when we looked at the credit rating of Brisbane Airports, which is currently triple B, we have shareholder um, confidence or they've indicated that they are uh, going to maintain a triple B minus rating. So that gave us confidence that at any point to actually maintain that triple B minus. If we got the scenario wrong, they were going to be putting equity into the structure to support that triple B minus credit rating. So ultimately, we looked at that. We felt that we were getting paid a superior credit spread for a triple B minus at worst rated company, which we thought was offering that superior returns that we were looking for. What did you lock in in terms of a return on so on it's that about issue? four and a half percent for ten years. Today it's trading more like around three point six. So been mm. you know a very successful investment for us. 
Now, you mentioned uh, REITs, real estate investment trusts. Uh, we're 19 floors up above Collins Street here. It's a gorgeous view. Uh, we're looking at a whole series of central business district towers that are still largely empty. So uh, I got a feeling uh, when you talk about real estate investment, there's property and there's property. Is that correct? Yeah, no doubt about it. And our view on on, um, REITs has been pretty polarised. We probably haven't invested into real estate from a fixed income perspective, I think in probably the last five, six years uh, that I can remember. Part of that reason was we could see risks, whether it be shopping malls, office, we could see potential risks uh, coming you know, down the track from these sort of se- investing in these sort of sectors. But more importantly, we weren't getting paid for the risk. The credit quality and the actual spread on not, the credit spread as compensation of the risk we were taking was not sufficient for us to invest any of our capital there. That changed post-COVID. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, we, we've invested in some debt from Australian Prime Property Fund, uh, which is an office, uh, high-quality office buildings. The thing we got comfortable about was, one, we were getting paid for that risk we were taking, but two, the Australian Prime Property Fund has uh, really tight covenants that they can't breach. So if they actually need to stay within that covenant for whatever reason, they need to sell a building or they need to raise capital from their shareholders. So we felt we were in a pretty you know, good position uh, and pretty well-protected position and we think was giving us well and truly above average returns. Similarly with Lend-Lease, uh, we recently in- invested into Lend-Lease deal and uh, that's been also a, a similar story and, and very successful one for us. Are you surprised that the residential market has held up as well as it has? And I guess from your perspective, it means that uh, residential debt has also held up pretty well, which is obviously important for the banks here because it's their big business. Yeah, in some ways, yes, yeah, surprised, but in some ways not. And I have to tip my hat uh, to Tim Tui. From day one, he was calling a V-shaped recovery. Yep. Um, I'm not sure if all of us in the office agreed with him at that point in time because it was a pretty early call for him to do that. But you can see the amount of support that's gone out to the consumer, whether it be tax cuts, job seeker, job keeper, and I hate to say the initial concerns we might have had from hardship, the flow and effects to real estate and property prices hasn't played out. And in some ways that may be just because the the government's done so much fiscal support and it could do so because it was in great shape leading into this pandemic that in some ways it's kicked the can down the street a bit. And the things that we were potentially concerned of in late 2020 may be a 2022 scenario today. We mentioned uh, hybrids. Earlier on, the banks are the big hybrid debt issuers in this country and have been for many years. They have their fans and they have their detractors, but you've got an interesting story to tell, I think, about hybrids and particularly one from the NAB. Yeah, that's correct. I must admit, probably in the mid-90s, I started to specialise in hybrids. So they're a passion of mine. They sometimes get a bad rap from the press and, and from other investors out there. But in my view, you know, if you do your homework, do the research, um, they offer superior returns. And, and that played out in our view. The thing you're mentioning about the story is that, you know, I've been a big fan of uh, NAB income securities for a long period of time. And if anyone's ever heard me present, I probably spend far too long in my presentations on it. But, you know, it goes back to 2012 and the GFC where hybrids perform more like fixed income than equity. You know, hybrids are meant to support companies at, at times of stress and, and what happened with the old types of securities out in the marketplace that never did that, they behave like fixed income. 
So what happened uh, back in 2012 was the bail committee um, changed the rules to qualification from Tier 1 to Tier 2. This is a classic example of what we were talking about before, about the, the bigger direct role that central banking has in the fixed interest market. This was a rule change yep. that produced a strategic opportunity. Yep, that, and, you know, when you do have rule changes, there's always flow-on events. You know, as we have with the QE today, with the RBA, there's always flow-on events from whatever uh, policy enactment is. But for me, in, in the, the NAB income, income securities, what it meant was there's transitional rules. So just take us through the rule change. Change from what to what? Yeah, so essentially they didn't behave like equity because there was no mechanism for conversion to equity. So what changed in 2013 was two events. They're called capital triggers. Um, so if actual capital of a bank falls below five and one-eighths, then there's a potential capital trigger that can mean that hybrid holders are moved into equity. And then there's also a rule which is called non-viability, which is not defined by the regulator, I think deliberately, but um, that also, if a bank be, is proved to be non-viable by the regulator, they can, you can also be, uh, as a hybrid holder, converted to equity. So the old one, the NAB HAs, looked like fixed income, behaved like fixed income, but qualified as tier one. That's tier one equity capital. In other words, something uh, that moves gearing down because it's counted. Moves correct. the that's, debt to equity ratio down because it's counted as equity. That's absolutely correct. Um, so from our perspective, what we did um, when, you know, as you say, the have you rule changes and those consequences, well, we analysed the deal and we felt the transitional rules that were offered for the banks to comply meant that uh, there was going to be a period uh, when these securities would be called back. And because our issue with such a low interest rate margin, they've always traded at a very deep discount. And what I mean by deep discount, trading below the $100. So historically speaking, you know, they've probably traded between, you know, I think back to 2012, they're probably trading more like $75 to $80, you know, cents in the dollar compared to their, um, now the $100 of uh, face value that was on offer. This is after the rule change because yep. basically they've been downgraded by the central banking system and no longer qualify as T1 equity. Is that right? No, it was more that I think people didn't understand them and they actually undervalued that they only had a useful life for a period of time. Um, so what we did was a lot of analysis on looking at the, the NAB and in, it was the NAB uh, income securities but also the Macquarie Bank income securities and we analysed their balance sheet, looked at the amortisation schedule that was on offer and uh, we forecast you know, pretty much within a couple of months of when NAB and Macquarie Bank would be actually calling those securities back. Now, this security has provided some tremendous opportunities over the time, but even in the pandemic back in April, this security was trading at 70 cents in the dollar. And the, the crucial thing was that they were going to basically cash them out at the par value rather than flip them to equity. Yeah, so basically they don't qualify as debt or equity. So they're in no man's land yeah. in our view. So that's one of the reasons why we felt they were always going to call them back. So, you know, what's really interesting, Macquarie Bank announced in earlier in the year they're going to call theirs back in 15th of April. Yeah. Uh, yet the market still allowed you to buy these things at 70 cents in the dollar for the NABs, um, which was quite remarkable and, you know, gave us another buying opportunity. Well, yeah, completely wrong, but suits you. Yeah, very much so. And, um, you know, I expect to lose that security, uh, you know, first half of 2021 when NAB calls them back. So uh, with the rule changes, is the game over for hybrids now or are there any more of these little gold mines out there? 
you know, the one thing that has changed is that rule. There was a transition rule. Um, so unfortunately, the old style fixed income like securities don't exist anymore. Um, you know, NAB HAs is one of the last remaining ones. There's a couple more out there um, that we own in our funds, but they're, they're very limited. So the hybrids... Are they now trading at 100 cents in the dollar? Has everybody woken up? No, no, they're not. You're kidding. So, no, so that opportunity still exists. So, um, and I'm still buying for our funds, so I won't uh, say what it is. So, but... Um, <laughs> What it has done, it means, you know, it doesn't mean we don't like hybrids anymore. It just means we have to price that risk um, because the risk profile for those old securities compared to the new securities has changed. And it's simple as that. That offered, you know, we had, you know, around probably 7% of our funds in, in that NAB income security because it just offered us superior risk-adjusted returns that we couldn't find better one in the marketplace. Mm. So today, you know, we still own bank hybrids. Bank balance sheets are in great shape. Um, we think the you know where credit spreads are for banks at the moment in there, particularly tier one, looks cheap. And um, you know we're we're continuing to add those to our portfolio. Just talking about the willingness or the possibility that overseas investors will look at this debt market here and uh, be more inclined to buy. The maths on that is actually quite attractive in this year of Corona, I think. Although we've been predicting increased foreign interest in the Aussie debt market for a couple of decades, I think, right? Yeah, there's no doubt, and I mentioned earlier that the average credit spread, you know, it currently is well and truly uh, above average, you know, spreads today above the long-term averages. But I think, you know, today it's quite an interesting time in, in fixed income markets. Government bonds don't really give you much of a yield. Yeah. But what you'll find in credit is that, as I mentioned earlier, you can get 3.5% in credit at the moment. And predominantly, our funds have much more of a, what we call floating rate bias. So if interest rates rise, we actually don't actually lose value. Yeah, we actually capture it and we gain the value. So we don't run what they call a lot of interest rate duration risk within our funds, which can potentially be disastrous for value within your fixed income fund. So... Historically, funds that look at, you know, government bonds, semi-government bonds carry that duration risk. And at the moment, they have really what we call no carry above the cash rate because essentially they're, yeah, they're, those funds are sort of offering between 80 and 90 basis points. But what we're finding is offshore investors are being, you know, definitely attracted to uh, that 3.5% yield, especially when you have a currency that a lot of people are expecting is going to go higher. Mm. And I think you can get investment grade debt here that is competitive on yield with junk debt in the United States. Yeah, so if I look at our portfolios on average, we measure things by credit spread because we think how much we've been compensated for the risk across our portfolio. That's spread over what? Uh, So generally spread over what we call swap, which is effectively where the bank swaps fixed and floating rates. So it's a good comparison. Um, So... You know, as I mentioned, credit spread of around 360 basis points, uh, five-year swap mark is probably around the 30-ish. So we're getting somewhere to the tune of around a 3.9% yield to maturity on our portfolio. If I compare that to offshore and I look at, say, US high yield markets, the credit spread on a US high yield is somewhere around that 295 basis points today. So... I think in my career, I can only remember a couple times where my funds that I've managed are actually offering a higher credit spread than what's being offered in the US junk bond market, um, which is quite remarkable because, you know, if we think about it from a credit rating perspective, we're probably what we call three notches higher in credit quality than what the US high yield market would be. 
Roy, are you happy with what our central bank, the Reserve Bank of Australia, has done during this COVID crisis and what central banks have done generally? They've pushed rates down, obviously, with rate cuts, but they've also significantly increased and, in Australia's case, introduced quantitative easing, which the yokels will tell you is quasi-money printing. Yeah, look, uh, it's a really interesting dilemma because I actually don't like interference in markets. I'm a bit of a free market person, but I think the one thing it has done for us is probably provided opportunities. If I can sort of elaborate on that a bit, the moment the central bank has started its QE policy, there's no doubt when you start pegging short-term interest rates uh, to the cash rate, so three-year bond, they've told you that the cash rates aren't going up for three years. Yep. Uh, they've basically told you that. And, you know, they've also enacted other policies like the TFF, so the Term Funding Facility for the banks, which has had a material impact on marketplaces as well, which mm. people probably don't don't see, but we live and breathe that. And, and what I mean by that is banks aren't issuing senior bank debt at the moment because they can borrow from the RBA at a lot cheaper for a longer period of time than what they can from financial markets. So that in itself has impacts on you know, the level of senior credit spreads in banks, which are now trading at actually post-GFC level, so almost on 12-year lows, which is quite remarkable when you think of coming out the other side of a pandemic. But, you know, I think what it does do, um, what, you know, and a good friend of mine said that they should have 20 years ago locked the cash rate out to, out to five years and then just let the big boys play in the five years to 10 years. So, but, you know, I think what it has done from my perspective is just taken volatility out of the marketplace. And what I mean by that is by telling you that cash rates aren't moving up for three years, and, um, you know, having facilities like the term funding facility, which means the banks don't need cash at the moment, means that things like term deposits are falling to record, le- you know, low levels. Yeah. So what this does from a portfolio management perspective is that we're starting to think, well, what's going to happen to our marketplace and, and where, where can we take advantage of that? And my feeling is that, you know, the RBA has given us an environment where it's going to be pretty stable over the next three years. It's going to be harder for, um, you know, mums and dads out there to actually generate a yield. Also harder for traders in low volatility, I would have thought. No doubt about it. But sometimes that can be good also because it gives you surety about your positionings. You know, so, you know, our outlook on the marketplace is that, you know, under this scenario the RBA has provided us probably means that credit spreads are just going to grind in. You know, as maturities come up, as term deposits mature in the marketplace, we think people will... You know, they need, they need income to live. So we think there'll be a slow rotation, uh, not a massive rally in credit, but we think there'll be a slow grind in, which will be favourable for our funds. The funds are positioned very well for this sort of scenario. And uh, the pressure increases as we get into year three, I guess. It seems a long way away. But if they're saying, basically saying nothing will happen for three years, you have to start thinking about what is going to happen as that deadline approaches. Yeah, I think I said to my team, uh, uh, we'll start looking at that probably 12 to 18 months out so that markets tend to always be forward-looking and uh, try to price things in accordingly. So I think we've probably got 12 months of this environment before we start to need, need to start thinking about where do we go from here. Mind you, we're going to see, you know, in Australia's case, we're going to have a strong period of growth. Uh, the amount of stimulus, monetary policy stimulus that we've got in the system, it's hard to see that we're not going to have strong growth in 2021. And from your uh, one-on-ones, the conversations you're having with the companies that uh, you invest in and that Yarra invests in, 
And from what you're hearing about the macro environment, it sounds like you're not worried that when the fiscal support, the emergency support is withdrawn, is now is now happening, that we're going to go off some kind of a cliff and there's going to be a, a, a balloon of bad debt situations? Yeah, I think, once again, Tim's called that pretty right. The, the time the stimulus is starting to be withdrawn, is it going to be at a time when the economy is picking up and picking up the slack and people are starting to deploy again? And But... We're also coming into a period here where, you know, consumers have actually been saving, uh, their savings and the saving rates have been quite astronomical. All right. And finally, the black swan question. I like to ask the people that I talk to on this whether there's anything they want to nominate as the thing that would upend the way we've just been talking about your specialty, the debt markets. It's not a one-word answer, but just quickly, what's the scenario that the markets may not be talking about that you think could upend everything and change the rules? Yeah, I think because we're bong guy, I'm a bong guy, we all, we're always pessimistic. <laughs> so we're always looking for that black swan event. And to me, it's not one thing, it's two things. There's no doubt the biggest risk is rising interest rates, which to me can only come from, because central banks around the world said they want growth. They're chasing growth. Yep. Right? That's the whole purpose of this. So the one thing that is going to change that view is a, a sharp rise in inflation. Now, if you've called a sharp rise in inflation over the last 20 years, you've got it so wrong. But I think the one thing that's different this time is interest rates are so low. Yeah. They are really so low that we don't have that comfort for you know, a sharp deterioration in uh, inflation. The other thing that we probably can't underplay e- either is if you remember back to 2013, the taper tantrum, the market totally misread what the Fed was doing in its wine back of QE back then. The other risk is if the central banks get their communication wrong um, and the markets totally misread uh, or read something different than what the central banks are communicating. That's also a risk in my view. But you know, rising interest rates from here will decouple equities. It'll it'll upset a lot of the you know property. So you know, it's the biggest risk on our radar. As I said, it's more that speed in the rise, more so than uh, the actual rate of the rise. And what would you rate uh, the risk on rising inflation and rates at? Because as you say, they're not promising, but they're basically saying three years, forget about it. Yeah. So if you think about, you know, if I bring that back to what makes up yield um, and what you get compensated for as an investor, you know, if I've taken your question the right way is that you know, in a 10-year bond today at around 1%, you're getting compensated for the next 10 years for inflation. And, and most people are predicting that break-even inflation is roughly around 2%. So the remainder of that, you know, return is negative because rates are at 1% and inflation's at 2 then you actually have what we call the compensation for investing for term or risk premium is minus 1% which historically speaking has been more like 2%. So it shows you the level of where interest rates can rise to, especially even if we don't get a change in break even, you know, inflation and just people perceive that they need to be compensated for investing for 10 years changes. And that's what QE has done. QE has driven, you know, that risk premium or term premium for investing for 10 years to such a low level, uh, minus 1% in the case of a 10-year bond in Australia and the US, that, you know, people have become probably too comfortable. Not minus 1% coupon, minus 1% effectively. Yes, that's right. 
So, yeah, if you think about the yield of being a 1% return, if inflation's 2 you've got a minus 1% for investing for 10 years. All right, Roy Keenan, thank you so much for uh, coming along and uh, talking today. It's been great. Thanks, Mel. Really enjoyed it. The Yarra Exchange was brought to you by Yarra Capital Management and hosted by me, Mal Maiden. If you liked what you heard, and we hope that you did, hit the subscribe button and share it. And lastly, the disclaimer. The Yarra Exchange podcast content may contain general advice. Before acting on anything in this podcast, you should consider your own objectives, financial situation or needs and seek the advice of an appropriately qualified financial advisor. Any actions based on information within this podcast are strictly at your own risk. Any mention of past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. That's it. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.